Welcome to another episode of the BU Podcast, where light banter meets deep topics of the heart and soul. I'm your host, Chris Sirock. Welcome, my friends. I take it you're unfolding perfectly with life today, wherever you are. Boy, have we got a rockin' show for you today. Chris Niebauer earned his PhD in cognitive neuropsychology at the University of Toledo, specializing in the differences between the left and right sides of the human brain. He is the author of No Self, No Problem, How Neuropsychology is Catching Up to Buddhism, and the workbook that followed it. He was a professor at the State University of Pennsylvania for 22 years, where he taught courses on consciousness, mindfulness, left and right brain differences, and artificial intelligence. I can't wait to get started. Welcome, Chris. (laughs) Thanks, Chris. Now, you have an incredible background, not just professionally, but judging by the title of your book, also personally and spiritually. So as we know, no path is a straight shot. And there's many twists and turns, and ultimately those twists and turns become our path. So uh, let's dive right in and share with us, how did you get to where you are today? So, you know, high school, I was caught up in 80s rock, the image of a rock band. I I lived for it. I played guitar all day. And it kind of seemed like my life was set. You know, I thought, you know, I'm just going to keep playing guitar and I didn't care much about money, so that worked. And so, um, and then there was quite a bit of a shift. My da- my dad had died unexpectedly, and um, and it wasn't just his death; it was how I saw how death affected people, and it it just became this enemy. Like this, it was it wasn't just something to be feared. It seemed like it ha- had to be conquered somehow. And so I almost instantly jumped on this path of intense neurosis, thinking continuously I was going to die. And when I look back on it, I can hear myself describing it. And I have a faint memory of what it is like, but it has gone so far in the background. It, it, it even seems strange to me when I describe it. But every single day from the moment I would wake was continuously filled with this fear of death. And so when you tell people that, most people don't get that because that's not a normal state of mind. And um it was met with brief moments of uh, maybe a mindfulness and brief moments where like if I was watching a movie that was particularly distracting, maybe I'd come out of it for a little bit. And I just realized that if, if I got into this, there's got to be some like it happened very fast. So if I got into this, something caused it and there's got to be a way to back up and get out of it. And so I got a degree in psychology, which made some sense. Um, and it did work a little bit. Psychology, although I still feel like psychology has missed out on some of the, um, the the trickiest aspects of the mind. And so I was looking for something else to fill that gap. And then I stumbled across Alan Watts. And that really was a... And then Zen and our motorcycle maintenance did a little bit too as an undergrad, but it was really Alan Watts that just... I started listening to him and I was like, this is really this is so much more interesting than psychology to me. And then I realized that actually they could complement each other pretty well. And so Eastern philosophy can fill in some of the gaps that psychology had. And psychology, you know, the idea of being science-based and and, and doing experiments, and that's all really good stuff to uh, counteract the mind's willingness to make up stories. And so uh, I really felt like the, the, these two things, it seemed different, you know, Eastern philosophy and neuroscience, they seemed different, but then they they came together and 
while they were coming together for me, I had noticed they were also coming together in other places of the world where the Dalai Lama was suddenly talking to neuroscientists. And I was like, oh, this isn't just some weird trip I'm on. <laughs> this is like other people are doing this too, which kind of made me feel comfortable that, you know, I wasn't completely alone. And now when you look back, uh, the whole neuroscience, meditation, neuroscience, mindfulness, it, it really is its own. Um, they complemented each other so well that uh, it's its own its own field right now. And so I started, uh, so I went into academia and, uh, uh, you know, I started off teaching normal, you know, cognitive classes. And then I explored out and got more and more uh, adventurous teaching classes of mindfulness in the brain. And students really like that and uh, left-right brain differences. And I even taught a class on artificial intelligence uh, because not from a computing standpoint, because I don't know how to, do coding or anything like that, but from a psychological standpoint. And that was about four or five years ago. And you can really see how all of a sudden now, very ordinary people who have no interest in computers are suddenly interested in AI because it's so much a part of our world. And it's like looking in a mirror. And so when we start looking at AI, we're like, is this thing thinking? And then we think, well, what are my thoughts? <laughs> what is it to think? And so... Um, uh, all that worked out really nicely, uh, but I would never have predicted that trip. Uh, it was it, it was a trip that I could have never guessed would have ended up where it went. Wow. <laughs> there was so much good stuff in there. I, I don't even know where to begin. And trip is a beautiful word for it, too. <laughs> um, I'm a huge fan of Alan Watts as well. Um, you mentioned how you went into the field of psychology, and there was something about you that was looking for the gaps, I guess. Um, too often, you know, we go into a field and we just kind of absorb the, the status quo, the truth as it's being presented, and we don't actually question it ever, really. Maybe later on, but it sounds like there was something unique about you that really wanted more to see that something was missing. What was that? So you look at psychology, your standard definition is the scientific study of the mind. And so you look at everything from chapter one is the biology of the mind. Um, uh, you go through Freud and the unconscious and the ego defense mechanism. So it's all, you know, psychology is actually studying the mind. But one of the things they really missed out on is something that very few people have stumbled on is I stumbled on it directly, which took really was a huge factor in my own path. And that was something that Alan Watts called uh, uh, the law of opposite effect. Uh, Aldous Huxley called it something similar, but it was this nature of the mind to rebel and go in the opposite direction of where it's forced to go. And Alan would always talk about, okay, don't think of the number 13. And you'd think of the number 13. And so here I was in the height of my neurosis. And I, I remember this. It was so, so clear that it wasn't like a verbal understanding. It was more like just one of these epiphanies where it was completely understood that me fighting my neurosis was my neurosis. Me trying to not be neurotic was my neurosis. And it was like all of a sudden this flash was like, just give up stop fighting it. And the moment I stopped, all of a sudden, everything got very calm. And the mind just became very, like you could imagine water that's all muddy, and it just became very clear and peaceful. And I remember thinking, well, that's weird. <laughs> Here I am fighting and fighting and struggling, and it just gets worse the moment I completely give up on it all. And then everything gets very peaceful. And that is one of the things that was missing in psychology. 
you know, to me, that's such an important part of how the mind works. And so, you know, I ended up calling it the law of opposition or something like that, you know, and talking about it in various places. But I really feel like, you know, that that is so behind so many of our efforts to meditate. You were like, my mind must be silent. And then it just gets more noisy. And so it's one of those things you can read about, but you, when you have that direct experience, like when I give up trying to be happy, there's suddenly happiness. And, and again, there's few, like Viktor Frankl, he talked about this. He said that the need for happiness thwarts happiness itself. And so you can see it like here and there, but I think that should be its own chapter in every psych book. <laughs> like, look, here's the mechanics of your mind. It has this strange way of working in opposition that if you force it in this way, it's going to fight back. So if you try desperately to be happy, it's going to backfire. If you try desperately to be at peace, it's going to backfire. And then I started reading all the Eastern mysticism and, and this word surrender kept coming up. And you see it over and over. People talk about surrender and uh, letting go. And that's what they were getting at. So I had the experience and it's like, oh, that's the experience. You let go. You realize that you're not in control in the first place. So it was very, um, it was a nice connection. But I still think psych can benefit by it going off in different directions. I mean, when you look at, so again, psychology is the study of the mind. But then you look at Nisargadatta and you look at some of this uh, older stuff in Hinduism, and they talk about the mind all the time. And even the Buddha talked about, you know, the, the mind can be your best friend or your worst enemy. That mind that they're talking about is the same mind that psychology is studying. And so it's the same thing. It's just in Eastern philosophy, they were going from the inside with experience, and then psychology was doing research. But it's the same mind. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Uh -huh. I have to admit, I'm not as focused on science as many are. Very often, my inner truth didn't need to be researched because it, it sprung forth from my inner experience. And from that experience, I deduct the value of it for me and myself. But you're getting me excited to hear some of the external view from you because you're combining the two in a way that's really exciting. Um in your research, how do you see the brain responding to meditation? How do you see our minds respond to kind of an inner state? Yeah, so it's interesting because when you really get into meditation, and I probably made every mistake in the book when it comes to meditation. When I was neurotic, I was meditating and I was doing everything wrong. <laughs> it took it took a while to to really get at what um, what's behind it. You know, so what is this? What is meditation? And eventually I came to discover it's simply not thinking. I could even say it's not identifying with the thinking mind. So you sort of become the observer. And in that, so when that hit, I was like, oh, you, you can meditate while you're driving. You can meditate doing anything. But at the beginning, I was very much, you know, trying to get in the right position and timing myself and seeing how long I could go. And, and you know, and of course, all I was doing was just, reinforcing the mind. Uh, so um, so meditation, it, it's a little tricky, I think. So when you look at the science of it, people are getting at it in different ways and sometimes they're doing simple breathing, but there's something about it because there's a trend in the research. And, and when I taught my mindfulness class, the most difficult part of it was keeping up on the research because it's it's remarkable. They're, so they're not just doing studies anymore. They're doing these meta-analyses where they'll look at hundreds of studies and then they'll look for a trend. And the research just, it's so overwhelmingly positive. And so even if there's a bias and people are, you know, maybe have a slight uh, 
bias in, in reporting, even if that's there, it still looks like one, there's very few, if any, side effects from meditation and mindfulness. So we're good with that. And it looks like it really does change the way the brain is working. So uh, the parts of the brain that are really important seem to get the more density with neurons, with interconnections, and other parts of the brain, like the amygdala, which is you know, that's that kind of like fight or flight response. Someone cuts you off and you just get really angry. And uh, that part of the brain seems to shrink. And it, it, it seems to happen so fast. I mean, people go away on a three-day retreat and they come back and these structures, the amygdala structures are actually smaller. And so that's all looking really good. And because that's what a lot of people are going for. They're like, they're very easy to anger and they'd like to become less like that. And But they don't know how. And then, you know, they're down to three days. <laughs> so that's pretty good. And so, um, you know, how the, the, there's almost a kind of competition with this, like how short can we go? So I've got it down to like one conscious breath can actually pull you out uh, of a bad situation. And we don't know if this is true, but my guess is that even that one conscious breath will get you out of thinking. And it's probably rewiring your brain to some degree. Uh, so, but they don't have that research yet. But my guess is it's it's right around the corner. In the next ten years, they'll have that because the, the techniques are getting more sophisticated, where they can actually look at the interconnections, not just how active a part of the brain is, but they can look to see. Because when we say we we'll rewire the brain, what do we mean? And they can actually uh, take a look at how some of these parts are becoming stronger and more interconnected, and then we're breaking old connections. So, it, every experience we have is probably to some degree reorganizing our brain. Wow. Oh my gosh. Would you say that most of our, or let me keep it more open, less leading, how much of our life experience really is determined by our inner state versus just, I don't know, our biological sensory apparatus taking in external inputs? Well, that's why I play a weird game with these being in this different different world, because I could always say, well, I have a PhD in neuroscience and look like I'm brain first and the brain controls everything. And you could watch some of my videos on YouTube and it sounds kind of like that. I talk about the left brain making up stories. and But then I've got this other reality that I spend quite a bit of time in where um, the brain is, it, it, these are good metaphors. They're good ways to get a hold of what's happening. And so neuroscience can really, particularly the way I look at it, simplistically, the left-right brain. And to me, that's a very good foundation for understanding neuroscience. It's very simple for most people to grasp. And I talk about, you know, you're all caught up in work politics and that's the left brain consciousness. And then you, you're going for a nature walk and all of a sudden you don't even exist. There's no you and you're just, you are the sounds that you're processing. And so you are nature and you realize that you've always been part of nature. And, and that's more of a right hemisphere process. So I talk about that, but then, and, and I always do this at the end of my books. Um, the last chapter is the one that uh, I lose traditional neuroscience <laughs> because I take it, I take it like the way you put it, that it really is, it's your inner perspective, your inner orientation that's really far more causal in what happens in your life. And it's what we call consciousness. And uh, most neuroscientists believe that consciousness is the sole product of the brain. And uh, I understand that way of thinking. It's just not where I ended up. I think the brain is important, very interesting, very informative. But in the end, when we lose the ego, and we, we recognize that this ego is more like an old survival mechanism. It's an old program. 
it's very fixed with rules. It's not who we are. And that discovery that that's not who we are, it, you're taking away all the falsehoods and, and you're left with this very fascinating mystery of, of this consciousness that can't be defined. But then what life teaches us is that the orientation of that consciousness, its literal vibe, and, and, and I'm not even being metaphorical there, it's like an actual vibe, really determines how the world comes to us. And Psyche did get some of this. They talked about self-fulfilling prophecy and things like that. So Psyche did get this, that, you know, the inner state can influence the external world. But in some of the more mystical stuff, like manifestation, and I think that is uh, at least been so true in my life, that uh, when you're absolutely grateful for abs everything you have is perfect, right as it is, all of a sudden, everything is attracted to you. <laughs> And you end up with so much more. And then when you go out into the world with a, oh, poor me, I, I don't have enough, and then everything gets taken away. And, and so that seems really similar to what I was talking about before, that nature of the mind, that kind of law of opposition thing. And so if we make demands on the universe and we say, look, you know, I should have a better job, I should be making more money, the universe seems to just give us less. <laughs> and, but at the moment, we're completely grateful for what we have. And it can, and the cool thing about this is you can't fake it. <laughs> There's no one to fake. It, it's the pure conscious experience. So you and any of your listeners, you know what it feels like to be absolutely grateful. And, and so there's no faking that. But when you feel that, and again, we could talk about that in terms of right hemisphere processes. And, and there's, there, again, it's a, probably something to that. But that it's like, it's a different world. So we're all, you know, we have this concept that we're living in one world. And I'm not sure about that because I've lived in so many different worlds. And it seems like every morning you get up and you're like, what world do I want to live in? And, you know, do I want to live in a world of complaints and uh, feeling, uh, you know, like somehow things didn't work out my way or another world where I'm the architect. And even all the suffering, because again, we started off, I was talking about being launched into this suffering for years. It, it, this went on for years, but I wouldn't be here talking to you right now if it wasn't for that suffering. And so how do I know, you know, I didn't create that for a purpose? Wow. Oh my gosh. Oh, I'm going to soak that up for a moment. Mm. So this will be a last chapter kind of thing, tapping into kind of the, the deeper eye, if you want to call it that. Why do you think life is this way? You mentioned the law, law of opposition. We get conditioned a certain way early on. Is it because we don't have any tools that we just absorb the outside before we become more internal? Um, but then even if that's the pattern, why is that the pattern? Do you have any deeper sense of what's going on? So it's a really, you know, it's a great question. You know, how do we end up here? And, you know, and, and if you get into the non-duality crowd, that's even more complex for people because it's kind of like, well, we're one consciousness. Well, if, if that's true, why are we playing this game of duality? Because it really seemed like I'm here in this meat suit and, and um, you know, it, it doesn't seem like I have any control. It just seems like I'm this little me and I, I'm, I'm struggling against survival. And, and, and you say, well, if I was an all-powerful 
eternal consciousness, why in the world would I play little me? <laughs> and why would I feel this sense of separation? And to me, that's a great question. And it's one of the first questions when I meet another teacher or get into a discussion, um, or if I'm even in class, I, I throw that out and, and say, well, why do you think, like, why would this happen? And again, Alan Watts, such a gift to the world because he was able to summarize things so well. And he told a story that was very common in the East about um, God playing hide and seek. And how, uh, well, if you were an all-powerful consciousness, would you just sit in your meditation or would you mix it up a little bit, have a little fun, forget who you are? And so I put this in terms that people might be able to relate to. So imagine if you owned a casino and if you're playing in the casino, it would be a real bore because you're playing in a casino that you own. So if you lost, you'd win. And if you would win, you'd lose. There's just no fun in it. But think for a moment, what if you own the casino, but you could wipe that memory. And so you forgot that you're the owner. You forgot that you're the whole picture. Now you're just a little me at a slot machine. And now all of a sudden you get super excited if you win. And you get, well, pretty upset if you lose, but it's the game seems so much more real. And so all of our experiences are ways that we can do things that the eternal consciousness was limited to. So eternal consciousness, again, if you're this all-powerful consciousness that's the being of reality, there are certain things... And it sounds contradictory, and yes, it's a paradox, but there are certain things that you're limited to. You, No one can tell you a joke, because you know all the jokes. <laughs> you know, you, No one's going to give you a surprise party. But if you forgot who you are, and you became this little ego that was in the dark, then you get to feel surprised. And, and to me, this is one of those really cool ways of, of appreciating our, our limitations. So like right now, I don't know what you're going to say next. I don't know what's going to happen the rest of the day. And all that, it, it makes life so interesting that we actually don't know. By our limitations, we're actually giving this gift. We're completing God. We're extending out with all these experiences. And if there's one thing about this reality, and whether it's a simulation, who knows, but one thing about it is the diversity. You know, I mean, this isn't just a bunch of copy and paste. You know, you look out and every tree is different. Every blade of grass is unique. You know, every time you see a cloud, it's it's a new cloud. It's not the same you've seen in the past. And so whatever the mysteries of the universe are, it seems to crave diversity. And then that's what we are. So we became these little individual ripples, you know, in the ocean. And each one is totally unique. So no matter how your life goes, the left brain might, oh, I screwed this up. And it's always finding the fault. But you've gone on a completely original path. And that is your gift to the universe. So that, that's what I feel is our, is our purpose. Wow. Okay, so then if we take that a step further. This built-in resistance that we have, the attachedness that we have to uh, this experience, it comes also a lot of suffering that you mentioned that then ultimately wakes us up. And then I often hear from people that reach a certain advanced stage of mindfulness and meditation that there's a loss of meaning and a loss of purpose, and it feels like we're just passing time. So can you speak to some of those elements of consciousness becoming aware of itself? That's the game. We're stuck in a certain way so that we can then emerge from that stuckness. 
but the stuckness is you, you described it so beautifully like it's fun and it, it's inspiring but there's also a lot of misery and suffering related to it so it's not like a perfect system but there's an actual gaming component to this to introduce some variables and we just describe it as suffering but ultimately it's almost um human if you think about it <laughs> what do you make of all of that so again getting back to this law of opposition there's a there's a strange mystery of this reality where everything seems to be what it isn't and we're kind of figuring that out so if you look at the physicists they're like the stuff matter and it really seemed like you know our common sense is like hey this is a solid thing and then it turns out it's not a solid and it's not a thing. In fact, it's this mysterious energy with statistical probabilities of even, you know, coming in and out of existence. And so, and then it seems like there's a lot of matter around us, but then there's only 5% of the universe that's actually the matter that we think of as being matter. 95% of it's this dark matter, dark energy that we have absolutely no understanding at all about. And then there's time, you know? time becomes everything that it isn't. We live in the past and the future, but that's illusions because the only time is the present moment. So there's a strange thing where the universe seems to play a game of being what it isn't. And when I look back at the suffering that I had endured, and again, it's all about, it's so much perspective because I can look at it and say, the poor me, and the suffering was absolutely genuine. And so I could say, I've, I've really been uh, to hell and back. You know, I've really felt that. But then you, the perspective is, is that that's just part of this game of being who you're not and then finding your way home. And so in the other book, I talk about an escape room as another metaphor. And so, so much of this existence seems to be, we got lost, we became these humans, and we've had outrageous interesting experiences. Some of that, a lot of that is suffering. And, and then we've left breadcrumbs for us. These strange things. Sometimes the breadcrumb is in physics, and then sometimes it's in psychology. And all of a sudden we're realizing, oh, these are all kind of guiding us back home to find out who we are beyond the ego. And then in that same way, you know, if you've ever gone on a, like a long, uh, like you can just drink water and it's okay. But if you go like on a 10 mile jog when it's like 90 degrees and then you drink that water, it's just so much, it's like a whole different experience. And so this is the way consciousness gets to get lost and then find itself. And when it finds itself, it's that feeling of coming home, that realization uh, that's universally called the mystical experience is this consciousness realizing it's always just been consciousness. It just went on a wild adventure of getting lost. And then you see the suffering are like, oh, that was just a bad dream. The suffering wasn't what I felt like at the time. But if I hadn't had that feeling that I couldn't have actually suffered. And so I had to buy into the suffering because that's what suffering is, believing it. And so I had to do that to get lost so I could find my way back home. Wow, this is incredible. Oh, my goodness. OK, so you mentioned the unknown being the miraculous place to be. And I talk about this all the time. My own observation of the mind's obsession with controlling and steering and wanting to know things and that that becomes a blocker to allowing life to flow and to be open and to be present and all these things. And why do you think that is? Why is the mind so obsessed with knowing? Because that's a great way to get lost from God. It's a great way to get lost from who you truly are. It's a great way to build an illusory self. 
And so the thinking mind is everything. When you when you really dive in and say, okay, let's get into thinking, because that's what so many of us are obsessed with. We live in thinking worlds. We wake up, we start thinking. We know thinking causes a lot of our suffering, but there's not really, you know, there's a couple books out and I've done a lot of videos on how to stop intrusive thoughts by, well, not trying to stop them. <laughs> this is one of the uh, quickest ways uh, to it. But um, uh, so we, we kind of get this. And, and that's why if you look particularly like modern culture, we've got a million ways to distract us from thinking, whether it's addictions or our phones. We're caught in a situation where we've idolized thinking as our highest achievement. And that, so so to be really intelligent is the highest goal for so many of us. And I, I used to ask my class, and this is probably a super dated question. I don't know if you remember House. It was a TV show about a doctor who is super brilliant, but he's addicted to drugs and, you know, uh, miserable. And I would say, would you rather be House or uh, like a, a really average person who happens to be very happy, but they don't have any money. They're not particularly smart. And you know, I can't talk anyone into being that average. Everyone wants to be House. They want to be the, the brilliant mind. And... So we're stuck in a, in a strange value system here. We like our suffering. And, and so we're, we're a very strange species, really unique on the planet, because we're only happy when we're suffering. <laughs> and, and when we're truly happy, we feel kind of anxious and uncomfortable about it. And it all stems from our overvaluing of thinking. And so you start saying, okay, well, what's thinking? What is this thing that I do so much of? And... I've done a whole series of videos on my YouTube channel where I, I really deconstruct thought. And if there is one, what was in Hinduism called Maya and illusion, if there's one thing that's completely illusory, it's it's thinking itself. And probably way beyond what we could get into, but there are some very simple ways you can get into this and, and show that thoughts are not what you think they are. <laughs> and so this thing that we're obsessed with isn't even what we think it is. And so just a real simple way to describe this for your listeners. So if I said, okay, I want you to think of a yellow square, you know, just close your eyes and form a yellow square. And that's, that's your thought right now is a yellow square. And really get it nice and clear. And okay, are you sure you're thinking that? And most people will say, yeah. My class would say, yeah, okay. And I'd say, okay, let's take it down a little bit. Are you sure that's what you're thinking? What makes you think it's yellow? And people start looking like, okay, they'll close their eyes and they're like, um, I I kind of, I think it's yellow. What well, are you sure it's a perfect square? And they'll be like, uh, I don't know. It, 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 so <laughs> it's not that you're really thinking what you think you're thinking. It's just more of this in the East, they talk about, well, you know, there's a stick in the road, but you think it's a snake. So you, you react. And so all the thought, the chatter in the mind that we're so desperately trying to fight against and get peace from, the really, interesting news is it's not even what you think it is. It's not even there in the way that you think it's there. And so you can do this with another exercises with the voice in the head, which so many of us, you know, we wish we could turn down because we're trying to get to sleep and it's just telling us about the meeting we have tomorrow. Or maybe we sent out an email, you know, and we're, we're terrified because we're thinking, oh, that was not an appropriate joke or something. I'm going to get fired on Monday. And so you're laying in bed and a voice in the head just keeps going on and on. But And you say, okay, well, then this is what we call it. We call it the voice in the head. Are you sure it's a voice? What makes you think it's a voice? 
whose voice is it? And you say, what's my voice? And, and, and you say, are you sure? And you get people, in, I'm kind of condensing this, so you might take it a little slower, but you'd say, okay, well, start talking to yourself. And then really take the kind of spotlight of consciousness and focus it on that voice in the head. Are you sure it's your voice? Can you make it louder? How loud is it? And so you, there's a way you can deconstruct thinking and you start realizing the thinking isn't at all what I thought it was. <laughs> and then this thing that I constructed as the big enemy, you know, it's kind of like we went back and I was telling you how death was the enemy at first. And then I realized there is no death. You know, the whole thing is just an illusion. And then you realize the same thing as this thing I've been fighting, This that I think too much. And we only think you think too much. And that's the real trick of it. And you say, wow, the universe is up to some really interesting games here. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It does feel like more and more like a just a game of, of some sorts. I always talk about understanding the rules. And if you live by the rules, actually, then life opens up to be a, a very beautiful experience. You, you could deem it heaven on earth. Uh, and it's just our resistance to the rules that uh, get us into kind of murky waters. Now, you mentioned the voice in the head. There's another voice that I often talk about. I refer to as the inner voice. Others call it intuition or your heart space, your inner divinity, your higher self, whatever you may call it. Where does that come from? So, you, you know, depending on what crowd I'm talking to, I could talk about that as the right hemisphere, which isn't particularly linguistic. So it speaks in silence. Sounds a little bit of a contradiction, but you get it if you've experienced it. And uh, in the research looks at it as the they call it the feeling of knowing. And it's again, a, James called it the fringe. And it's this very subtle, this kind of, you know, something, but you don't know how you know it. So the left brain doesn't know how it's happening, but the right brain just knows it. And and then you, you know, it's the classic, you take the leap and then the bridge appears. And you say that and the left brain has no clue what that means. <laughs> You're like, I'm not leaping if there's no bridge. The, for me, in my kind of transition from left brain obsession to kind of right brain mostly peace and if there's drama it becomes interesting drama or fun drama <laughs> and so I, I would say that all became initiated with recognizing that and again so many teachers have gone with this very it almost sounds too simple and that is that recognition that the voice in the head isn't who you are and which is to say that i am not thinking so i'm not thinking thoughts I mean, that's the way some people feel. They're like, I wish I could stop thinking. Well, what makes you think you're thinking in the first place? What makes you think that those thoughts are even yours? And then when you start analyzing, you're like, oh, my, all these thoughts, all the voice in the head is, it's a reflection of everything that I've digested from my environment up to a particular time. So if, if you get up and you watch the news and, and you hear how the whole world's burning and then the voice in the head just goes on, well, of course, that it's a mirror. It's like so much like a computer. If you download a bunch of information, those are the thoughts you're going to think for the day. And again, I don't even like that phrase. Those are the thoughts that you think you'll be thinking for the day. You're not thinking them. They're, it's a lot like a computer program. And in fact, I even called it uh, Mind 1.0. And that's this program running in the left brain that uh, keeps us surviving. And, you know, 50,000 years ago, everything was different. I mean, there was like, 
ice ages, you know, and people have a hard time imagining like, I mean, I'm in this comfortable house and like we can set our temperatures for like 72 degrees all the time. And 50,000 years ago, things would go from like freezing to 90 degrees, you know, just all over the place, you know, other animals were interested in you for lunch. Uh, you're continuously trying to figure out how to make it to the next day. And that's how the mind, this thinking mind, that's where it came from. That's where it evolved from. And it creates a sense of self. All this is basic survival stuff for humans. And again, our mind took a little bit of a different path because we're such social creatures and we had to fight off so many, uh, so if you look at all the other different humans that were a lot, so people generally, they're not aware that there were eight other types of humans walking the planet. And some of us do get that because if you ever had a DNA test, you're like, wow, I'm a, I'm a 1% Neanderthal. <laughs> now, what does that even mean? Well, it means that there were different humans walking the planet and they were sometimes mixing it up. And But in the end, there are no Neanderthals around and there are no um, Homo erectus who was around for 2 million years. And here we were just around a couple hundred thousand. I mean, Homo erectus was here for two million years before us. And how how do we survive? And they didn't. And one possibility is this, this, this fantastic machine we call mind. And it's clever and it's great at survival. And it makes tons of mistakes. But it was just clever enough to keep us on the planet and, and alive. And so when you look at it that way, now, again, most of us, we don't play that survival game anymore. You know, you have a house and you have too much food in some places in the world. And uh, everything, we have microwaves. And, and so this poor mind program has nothing to do anymore. And so all it does is become an irritant. <laughs> it was here for survival. Now it's just trying to figure out what to do. And so now it's going to create problems. And there's a fantastic study, one of my absolute favorite studies that shows this. And this is why we're talking about, like, how can science kind of illuminate who we are? And um, what they did is they, they brought in participants in simple tasks. They said, you know, if we see a purple dot, hit a button. And they had purple and all these other different colors. And so real simple tasks, you know, you hit the purple dot. And then the researchers removed all the purple dots and they thought, okay, well, they'll stop responding. But they didn't. They redefined the problem. So they started hitting the button when a blue dot appeared. And so instead of us just saying, I have no more problems, which is the absolute fact for a lot of us, we have no actual problems. <laughs> we redefine what a problem is. And then suddenly we're like, well, you know, my work isn't perfect. And uh, I'm not driving the car I'd like to drive. And I'd like to make more money. And um, so in the, in the research, they did this in a number of different ways. So they took a research article and they said, okay, I want you to see when there's something unethical and they purposely threw like really bad unethical situations in there and, and people caught them. But then they took all the unethical situations out. So it's just an ordinary paper. People went in and they started finding more problems. They This happened even when the researchers told them what they were going to do. So they said, <laughs> they said, look, we're going to remove all the problems. And they still redefined what a problem is. So I, when I talk to an audience and I love doing this towards the end and I would say, you know, what problem do you have right now? And uh, people will come up with things like, well, rent. I'm like, no, that, that's, that's next month or next week. What do you have like right now? And they'll say, well, uh, I'm in debt. Uh, well, no, that, that, that's just some fictitious future that you're imagining might happen. And it might, but it probably won't because most of our thoughts, in fact, this, this survival mechanism is remarkably inaccurate. And so, again, I'd invite your listeners just 
real quick to do this, and I, I take a whole semester on this, but you can do a short version. Every time you have what you think is a problem, I'm not going to make my rent this month, or I won't have this promotion that I've been working on. You know, write down all these problems that you think you have, and then see which ones come true. And if you wait long enough, you'll see not only did most of them not come true, actually, it's a good thing that this didn't happen because in the end, something far more interesting ended up happening. And so we have this faith in this mind 1.0 that it, and we, we think it's us. And we think we're the ones thinking the thoughts and we're the ones worrying because that's what people say. They're like, how can I stop worrying? You're not worrying. You're not. It's this program in your left brain that's worrying. So when you have that realization, you're like, Oh, what do I care what it does? Let it worry. And it's a really different way to live in the world. And so you say, well, I want to stop worrying. We're not you. The real you is never worried ever. It's this little survival program that's worrying. Realize it's not who you are. And then you're not going to care what it does. <laughs> in fact, not only that, sometimes it can start seeming really humorous. I think there's a lot of uh, humor in, in the cosmos, hidden humor, things that are, can be really funny if you look at it in the, in the right way. Wow. Okay. And uh, yeah, no, no, that's incredible. So the mind is designed for survival and solving problems, essentially. And now that there's fewer problems, the mind is basically creating problems because it, it needs problems to solve. <laughs> now, if we step back from that and assume that consciousness or the alien programmers, whoever designed all this from the start, does it feel like a bug that we've gotten to a place where there are no more problems or, or lesser problems to the point where we start creating them? It's a, it was never the machine. This is why I say I call it mind 1.0. It never had an update. Think about any computer program. If it goes without an update, it's working in an environment that has evolved beyond it. And so we're, we have these 50,000-year-old programs in our left brain, and yet the entire world, not only has the world changed so dramatically in the last couple thousand years, but if you look, the last 200 has been even more remarkable. So we keep getting this, like we're radically changing the world uh, more and more and it's on an exponential level. So this program is becoming so outdated so fast. And the, really one of the best updates you can have for it is the, the recognition that it isn't you. The recognition that it isn't you, it's just like, imagine if you were using an old outdated program and you just keep trying to use it. And it's just like, well, why isn't this working? Well, you know, recognize and you go, oh, that's why it's not working. It, it, it's 10 years old. And, and so when you realize, and you can have these moments, someone cuts you off in traffic and, you, and you're flooded with an emotion. And people are saying, well, you've got to control that emotion. Well, really, if you put it in context and say, well, this is, this is because it's a 50,000 year old program. Of course, it's going to get mad if it thinks someone pulled out in front of me. You know, it, it, was, it was meant to be offended. <laughs> it was meant to find fault. It, it was meant to find problems. And, and so uh, it's one of the reasons why we have such a difficult time doing nothing. You know, everything is absolutely perfect. And, you, and this is another exercise I do with my students. I'd say, let's just take five minutes and do nothing. Some researchers tested this out just to show you how radical this is for us. They put people in a room for five minutes and they said, all you have to do is, well, nothing. And you have this shock apparatus, like you could shock yourself if you wanted to. And they found that 
I was close to half the people shocked themselves just because doing nothing was so unthinkable that they'd rather shock themselves than do nothing. And so that shows you how interesting the whole architecture of the universe is. And so if you really think you're this program, that's the suffering and that's getting lost from who you truly are. And if you can do nothing, you can watch the program, how easily it gets bored because it was an advantage in the past to, to have us continuously vigilant. We were continuously, you know, getting food took a long time. It's everything that we take for granted took so, it was an all day event. And, and when you see other animals on the planet, you know, survival takes some time. And uh, we, we're one of those rare species. We have luxury time. We've got downtime, and which is great. And I think I think when we learn to live in both these worlds, that's when we can really take the next step in, ev in human evolution. Mm. When, we, when we recognize the old and we say, okay, there is this old survival me mechanism and it's going to look at people I don't know. It's going to think they're the enemy and it's going to be us versus them. And it's, and it drives most of politics and it's, and you know, we, we could see it surfacing in our day-to-day -day lives and we can't get rid of it. Um, but all we need is the simple recognition that it's not who we are. And so when so we stop trying to control our emotions and of course, Zen masters have known this for a long time. You know, if, if anger is there, it happens. And, and they've, they've given up long ago on trying to control an emotion. And that's because they've recognized it. And they don't put it in the same words, but they, you know, maybe the Buddha 2000 years ago would have even called it mind 1.0, you know, in this recognition that it's not who we are. Yeah. Wow. It's a strange thing that, and I wonder about this, and maybe you have some sh light that you can shed on this. We tend to resist something that's already happened. And that in and of itself just is illogical if you just think about it, but it also doesn't serve any real purpose in survival. So where does that come from to want something that already is to be different? <laughs> yeah, that's, um, oh, it was an old psychologist, he called that masturbation. Like it must be this way, it must be that way. <laughs> <laughs> and um and it's no doubt it's 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 a quality of the mind and and i think that that old survival program it started off very simple it's like well if i want lunch i need to get food and so it created an image of how it thought the world should be and that got more sophisticated into things like justice and and i think there's a positive side to that but the mind again with very little to do will create even fancier, more elaborate stories. And that's where we get this. This is how the mind thinks the world should happen. And, and it doesn't work. And, and what you're talking about is a, a condition in psychology they call rumination. And again, the advice I would give is the mind is going to ruminate. The mind is going to find problems. And this is what the Buddha was getting at when he said life is suffering. It's like, well, to put it a little bit more in terms we might talk about today, the mind creates suffering. The mind is going to be unhappy. And the trick is to recognize you're not the mind. So let the mind be unhappy. And then all of a sudden, that when people talk about joy, when people talk about peace, and, and like I always talk about it is you're, you're at the airport and you're take, carrying around hundreds of pounds of luggage. And no one even told you to do it. Like you're, you're just doing it because everyone else is doing it. And that's the way our identification with mind is. And we were taught it, to be fair, in our culture, 
creates an, a, a situation where we're likely to buy into the mind thing because our parents, told, they bought into their minds and they teach us to buy into our minds. And so in that way, we're carrying all the luggage around for no reason. And then the moment we put it down is the moment we recognize that's not who we are. So the joy people feel is that you've been carrying all this stuff around for a very long time. You didn't sign a contract. No one like told you like, oh, you have to carry this burden around in life. It was just something that we were taught. Mind is taught to us. Our identification with mind is something that is encouraged from the time we start going to school. We're explicitly taught, like your thoughts are who you are. And, um, you know, we're at a very interesting time in evolution where we're starting to pick up on very old traditions that have suggested we're not the mind. And so all the experiences I've had have not, immunized me from rumination. My mind still ruminates. My mind still finds disappointment. The only difference is I don't buy into it. There's a, an observer, a, a consciousness that's capable of watching the mind do what it does without judgment, without wanting to change it anymore. It's just an old program. It's going to be around and, uh, you know, there are a few people, uh, you know, you've probably heard this uh, story of Joe Bolte-Taylor, the neuroscientist who had a massive left brain stroke and her mind went offline for a while and she suddenly was at peace and she felt completely connected and um, totally everything is fine and perfect as it is. And so that's the, the trick of it without having a stroke, you know, without majorly altering the left brain, simply recognizing and, and the Buddha gave us tricks to this too. You know, the, the very fact that you, this is what I talk about with ruminating thoughts or ruminating or intrusive thoughts. If the very fact that you can't control them is the best evidence you could look for that it's not you. And so every time you get an intrusive thought, you can really be comforted by the fact that you can't control it. <laughs> and usually it's like this gift that no one recognizes as a wonderful gift. The fact that you can't control it proves that it's not who you are. So why are you trying to change it? You know, it's like driving around trying to drive someone else's car. It's like, why are you trying to drive that other person's? You can't. It's not who you are. It's not possible. And so that's what is behind that surrender. The surrender is the deep recognition that none of this is of your doing. So why do, are you? continuously getting mixed up and trying to fix something that's not even who you are. Wow. Oh my gosh. I got this incredible download as you were speaking. I'm wondering uh, what your take on it would be. It sounds like, because you mentioned how we used to solve problems and there's an element of presence when we're solving problems. So if the prehistoric versions of ourselves were faced with danger or any survival situation, it tends to pull us into presence. And our kind of current modern environment has taken away the acute situations that would pull us naturally into presence. And so is that really the problem of we're almost living from an evolutionary standpoint backwards and that we're trying to find back to a time by creating fake problems, but ultimately problems that will pull us into presence. And so we're really just recreating the experience of the prehistoric person just in a really bizarre way. Yeah. And we've come up with all kinds of, you know, entertainment of 
whether it's naked and afraid or survivor, we, we've come up with the kind of getting into our past. And there is a very interesting mystery with this. And I've I encourage people to, uh, if you ever get a chance, I just had this book kind of laying around here. It's, I don't know if you could see that. It's Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes. It's by um, Daniel Everett. And he goes into what is the, the absolute closest to our hunter-gatherer ancestors, uh, the Pitahan. They're very small. They're about down to 400 last time I checked. So they're on the verge of extinction. But they, again, are a way of looking into our past. And there's so many fascinating things about how we used to live. And they're all a trick. Uh, they show us ways that we can get to a, a very interesting way of living, even in the modern world. And so these individuals, their language is very interesting. If they can whistle or sing their language, which suggests that they're much more in the right brain than the left. They have no numbers. In fact, he spent eight months trying to teach them how to count to 10, and they couldn't do it. And you know we are obsessed with numbers. They, I mean, we can't even imagine living a day without numbers because everything is a number. Ratings and phone number, you know, money, everything is a number. But really, when it gets down to it, they simply do not think the way we think. And they don't want to think the way we think because observers of the small group, the Pitahan, the first thing they notice is they are the happiest people on the planet. Even though they face death, they face hardships that we couldn't even imagine. They are unequivocally the happiest people on the planet. And to us looking in, we're that's a mystery. We're like, you don't have anything, you know, you have no medicine, and their lifespan is very short. They die from malaria and disease all the time. People around you are dying, and yet you're so happy. And it comes down to they simply do not engage in thinking the way that we do. They are in reality. They're not thinking about it. And um, even truth, like for any of us in the West, we have a very conceptualized thinking version of truth, what truth is. To them, truth is fishing. And, and so Daniel Everett was a, a missionary. He was trying to convert them to Christianity. He couldn't do it because he, he would start talking about Jesus and they would say, oh, well, you know Jesus. And it'd be like, well, no, I don't. And they'd be like, well, you know someone who knows him. They were so in the what he called the immediacy of the moment that they were not interested in any kind of stories. And so they had no creation myths. They didn't even tell their kids like, you know, stories at all. The really interesting thing about this is the connection between storytelling and happiness. And I would invite your uh, listeners to a challenge. In fact, I was going to do a, a YouTube video on this, and I may in the next few days. It's uh, sort of our hidden obsession, our hidden addiction to stories. And it goes so much deeper than we think. And so you say, well, okay, you know, gossip is a story, and I'll stop gossiping. And the news is a story, so I'll stop watching the news. But when you really get to it, like, you pick up your phone, like your phone is a little storytelling device that you're carrying around with you and you're checking, which story is this? Which story is this? Emails are stories. And you're like, okay, well, could I give up those stories? And it's like, it's a little bit more tricky every level you go. But with the Peter Han, I think the, the short version of what they can teach us is, is that storytelling is leaving reality. It's not in the present moment. And so the thing about the Peter Han is they refuse to do anything other than live in the present. And that's why they're so happy in spite of death and, and they don't live as long as we do and they don't have all the stuff that we do. But it's they're 
living examples that being in the present moment is so powerful that it really is happiness. It is joy. It's the way the rest of the planet lives. You know, why is your dog so happy? You know, most of the time, your dog or cat or any other being on the planet, they're not telling stories. You know, we can't even do something simple. We go eat something and you hear a story and you'll be like, I'm hungry right now. And then you go eat and it'll be like, oh, that was delicious. Well, we're the only weird species that does that. Like every other species just eats when they're hungry. And that's because they don't tell stories about it. And uh, there's a whole Zen story with that. You know, it was something like, um, why aren't people happy? Why can't people just eat when they're hungry and sleep when they're tired? But we don't do that. You know, we never eat when we're eating. And and so that was the most mind-blowing thing in my mindfulness class as we had a mindful eating day. And I'm like, let's this is going to be the first time you actually ate anything and we're conscious of it. Because most of the time you're eating and talking or eating and watching on your phone. My son has this amazing ability. He can eat and be on his phone at the same time. And so they would, for the very first time, eat, you know, and it, and it was a mind-blowing. They're like, I've never eaten anything. I've never been here while I've eaten anything. <laughs> and, you know, most of the time people look at an empty pizza box and they're like, what happened to it? So this, all of our avoidance of reality, getting caught up in thought, getting caught up in the voice in the head, it, all of it is the ignoring of reality. And the reason that creates so much suffering is because reality is that putting down the 100 pounds of luggage. Reality is... It, it it really is no problem, joyful being of our true nature. I mean, that's who we really are. And it's so shocking to people when you let them in on that secret. And I've talked to so many people about this and they'll say, well, I can't stop. And I have to remind, or I, I always say demind them. And so it's not a reminder, it's a deminder. And I say, let me do, do another deminder and say, you know, remember, bring back the focus. All these thoughts, these abstract worlds that you're creating, work, politics, none of it's real, but don't try to stop it. That's what the mind 1.0 does. It, it creates these stories. It's trying to predict the future for survival. Let it do its thing. And if you start to let it do its thing, then you get this no problem experience. And it's very natural. There's nothing weird. All other beings on the planet, this is their natural existence. Wow. Oh my goodness. I could go on and on and on and on and on and on about this. And even just getting these hits of being a, a student in your lectures and having all of this download happening at the same time as it's coming out to the rest of us it must be an amazing way to spend your time, even if it's an illusion. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe one last question. You mentioned the word abstract. When you've abstracted so much of how it all works and the programs and Maybe we can do a, an episode two of this where we talk about Mind 2.0, or maybe you're already working on a book about that. But how do you find purpose when you've looked through everything? How does Chris get up in the morning and motivate himself? Or where does the motivation come from to then tackle the day and go out there and try to find meaning and make sense of things? The left brain is always going to want the complete story. It wants a beginning, middle, and an end. And, and, and it really can be useful. And so like we planned on a particular time and, you know, and so we got together online at a certain time and, and all that stuff is pretty useful. But 
that planning, again, it's, it's just more of that abstract world. And so my mornings are less filled with an abstract planning. In fact, I'm probably could use a little more of this because I, I have very little planning. Like to me, the, the wonderful thing about getting up every morning is to not know what today really will be like and embrace that. Like, I really don't know what's going to happen today. And, um, you know, it's it's kind of like gambling or something where you're you're like, okay, well, am I going to win? Like I said, you know, playing in our own casino kind of thing. And, and I think like, I'm great, grateful for this unique position that I'm in that I don't know what's going to happen today. And some days it's going to be very exciting and some days it, it'll be disappointing. But the disappointment, it wouldn't make any sense if it was all good. If every day was some, you know, just better than the rest, then there's no adventure. And so the workbook that came out, it actually started off because I was, okay, how do people get things rolling on this? And I really have a whole chapter on the power of small steps. And I really think, you know, the left brain wants the whole story, you know, the whole story of Chris, and this is how it's going to go. And, and anything that deviates isn't part of the story or it's wrong. And then that right brain consciousness is so much more like the Peter Han with the immediacy of experience and saying, you know, I'm just grateful to be conscious right now. And to me, that's the meaning of existence. And, and I actually challenge students on this. I would say, look, you can be rich and famous and powerful, but you will be a zombie. And in other words, you have to sell your, your conscious soul, but you'll be rich, powerful, all this. No one ever does it. Because consciousness is more valuable than being rich and powerful. It's, it's more valuable than anything. And so rather than looking for some kind of meaning, I've already got everything that I need because I am a conscious being who gets the experience today. And sometimes the experience may be something as simple as, you know, how does my tea taste? You know, this, of simple conscious experiences. But there's the perspective that I would never trade that for anything. So if I would never trade that for anything, I already have everything I need. I already have it. I have more than fame, more than uh, being rich, and more than being powerful. And that is the small step that takes me from day to day. Oh, my goodness. That is so beautiful. There's so many basketball-sized golden nuggets through all your, in the, the reframing of certain words and um, debraining. I love that one. So uh, I know I'm going to leave enlightened in a certain way, in a different way that I hadn't been touched before from this conversation. And I'm, I'm sure our listeners uh, will as well. Where can people find you to connect with you and get more of these nuggets? So I have a YouTube channel. You could just look under Chris Niebauer, PhD. And uh, that's a place where I like to go as deep down the rabbit hole as I want. It's a place of absolute open creativity for me. So every morning I get up, do a jog or a walk, and something from a mysterious place hits me. And that's what I do a video on. <laughs> no matter how weird it is, there are no limits of weirdness to it. And then I've got the No Self, No Problem book and, and the workbook. And I also have a web page that has a couple uh, ways to contact me and various other resources. But, you know, the, the YouTube channel is really the thing that keeps me up to date. And I've played with other social media, but YouTube's the one I'm most active in. And so, um, yeah, check it out. I try to make the video short and weird. And so uh, keep them like small steps. We're not going to do it all at once, but we'll just do one little thing and see how that works.
Oh, that's so beautiful. I'll post your links in the description. And uh, I think I'll be subscribing immediately once we get off of this. So thank you so much, Chris. You're an incredible soul, an incredible being. Thank you so much for coming on. No, thanks, Chris. It was great. Wonderful talking to you over this time. Great questions. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. The BU Podcast, bringing on remarkable people and their remarkable stories. Be sure to check out my website, Sirach.com, and find me on social media at Chris Sirach. Until next time, be happy, be free, be you.